This is Ralph Amsden. Welcome to another post-game edition of the Devil's Junkie podcast. I am back in Phoenix, the city with the name where the O is silent. And that was the problem for Arizona State in Boulder. When it mattered most, the O was silent. Let's talk about it. I was living in a devil town. I didn't know it was a devil town. Oh Lord, it really brings me down about the devil town. So Arizona State falls to 3-3 three and three after going out to Boulder, losing 28-21 to uh, behind a fantastic performance from Colorado All-Everything wide receiver LaVisca Chenault. And uh, it, it was an interesting game. I mean, Arizona State came out and they dominated time of possession. They stopped Colorado on their first drive, which is only the second time that Colorado hasn't scored on the first drive of the game all year. And um, they ran two 13-play drives in the first half. It's really the only two possessions they had in the first half because they got the ball back with a few seconds left in the second quarter, kneeled on it, ran out the clock. Um, but, I mean, two 13-play drives in which they have a 3.5-to-1 run-to-pass ratio. And, uh, I mean... Uh, when Herm Edwards tells you something, I think you got to kind of believe it, that Arizona State's identity from this point on is just going to go out, um, run the ball, and see if the other team is so poor at stopping the run that you can manage to build a large lead uh, the way that Georgia Tech did against Louisville this last week when they dropped 66 points at Louisville. Um, but it doesn't really necessarily feel like it's that kind of offense for Arizona State. This is a team that didn't even run 60 plays against Colorado on Saturday. So uh, we're, we're looking at this result, this 28-21 to 21 result, and uh, it, do, it doesn't make a lot of sense. This is a game where Arizona State was able to move the ball both on the ground and through the air almost at will, save for a couple of uh, very critical mistakes. But when you're not running very many plays and you're sort of playing the other team into the game, and as Danny Gonzalez mentioned, when your defense often puts you in a situation where you're matching the <laughs> the other team's energy, uh, every time Arizona State's defense would get a stop, uh, Arizona State's offense would go out and get stopped. Every time uh, Arizona State would score, Arizona's defense would go out and give up a touchdown. And so when you're matching the other team's energy, you're not necessarily dictating the pace of the game and everything that's going on. Um, and, and something else I want to talk about, when you are – uh, basing your identity from game to game, from play to play, based on what you're being shown by the other team, instead of coming into the game and saying, these are my strengths, try and stop them, um, you know, the, that can be an issue as well. And it's very possible that Arizona State's still trying to find its strengths and looked at what they did against Oregon State uh, and looked at the yards that, you know, Benjamin picked up against Washington as he now has three straight 100-yard rushing games uh, and says, you know, all right, well, this is going to be our strength. We're going to go forward with it then. But if that's going to be your strength, then obviously that's something you have to stick to for more than one half. You know, Benjamin had 22 touches in the first half, six in the second half. Uh, that's going to obviously be a, a problem. It, it definitely, it, it tells a story, not the whole story, but it definitely tells a story of how Arizona State is letting what the other team is showing them and doing to them defensively dictate the type of offense they run instead of coming in and saying, this is our identity. It's up to you to try and stop us. And so, um, uh, let's let's talk about this game because I, Colorado came out and I, they ran a lot of plays in a short amount of time. They ran eight plays 
um, in a, in a two minute and 40 second opening drive where they ended up having to punt. And it seemed like they were going at a super high tempo just for the sake of tempo, maybe to get Arizona state out of sorts and, and exhaust the, uh, exhaust the Arizona state defense early. Um, and then ASU, you know, they get, they get the ball and, 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 Eno Benjamin, uh, he, he gets three carries on the first five plays, uh, and also catches a pass for a three-yard loss. So, you know, Benjamin touches the ball on four of Arizona State's first five plays. Then we get an Isaiah Floyd appearance, which was his only touch of the entire game. But on the sixth play of the game, on the sixth offensive play for Arizona State of the game, Isaiah Floyd gets you eight rushing yards. You never see him again. Um, and then, you know, Nikhil Harry catches a 16-yard pass. Um, you know, Benjamin runs the ball a couple of more times. And then you have a penalty on Davion Taylor trying to cover Nikhil Harry, which is what happens when you throw to Nikhil Harry. That gives Arizona State 15 yards. And then you have Eno Benjamin uh, finish it off with a with with a one-yard touchdown run to give Arizona State a 7-0 lead. Colorado comes right back out. Uh, and they they march right down the field and they score. Uh, he had a, a Steven Montez, Colorado's quarterback, had a 39-yard pass to um to Tony Brown, uh, where Taryn Adams was in coverage that, that got the most of the way. And then LaVisca Chenault was actually able to score on um, a direct snap because he, you know, they, they do everything they can to get the ball in his hands. LaVisca Chenault's a guy who, going in, Arizona State knew was going to be an issue, even though Danny Gonzalez did talk about after the game that he, that he, he thinks he may have underestimated LaVisca Chenault, which... Uh, you know, if you've seen Lavisca Chanel, if you've seen Colorado's offense this year, it's kind of hard to imagine. You know, looking at that and saying, "Oh, you know, we'll we'll be able to, uh, you know, do what we do through the natural course of the game and 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 stop that guy or slow him down." This is a guy that had six touches against UCLA in the first half of a game where he dominated just last week, and against Arizona State on Saturday, he had 12 touches in the first half. So, you know, Colorado was going out there. They were going to do what Colorado was going to do. They don't They don't care what Arizona State was showing them defensively. They didn't care what Arizona State was showing them defensively early in the game. They didn't care what Arizona State was showing them defensively in the middle of the game. They definitely didn't care at the end when they ran seven minutes and 10 uh, seconds off the clock to just choke Arizona State out at the end of the game. Um, you know, ASU knew what Colorado was going to do. Colorado went out and tried to do it anyway. And that's ultimately, and that's something that I wrote about as well, that's kind of the difference between Colorado and ASU right now is Colorado's going to do what they're going to do and ASU's going to do what uh, what you let them. You know, it's it's about you know, taking what you want versus taking what you are given. And right now, Arizona State is taking what they are given. Uh, but in this first half, I, I want to stress, because there are a lot of people on social media calling for Rob Likens' job, that Arizona State had the ball twice and scored twice. What more do you really want from Arizona State in the first half of this game? It's really tough to to pick apart anything that they may have done wrong. I, I will say that I was interested, and again, they only had the ball twice, so you can't nitpick too much or... I mean, you can. Everybody's gonna. Everybody's gonna do what they're gonna do. But Nikhil Harry had over 60 yards receiving one minute, less than one minute into the second quarter. That's what he finished with. And I know he got injured in the middle of the third quarter, and we'll get into that a little bit. And he 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 was on the field uh, while being banged up after um, after taking uh, a hit from Drew Lewis. But you know they didn't target him. Kind of used him as a decoy. Which if you're not 
going to even look his way because he's beat up, then, you know, why have him on the field? But that's, that's a different discussion altogether. Um, the second quarter, uh, you know, Arizona State had an opportunity um, to score. Uh, they get a missed field goal from Brandon Ruiz, 53-yard attempt, uh, no good. And then they come back out and 13 plays. 79 yards on their third drive. So, again, I said they scored on the first two drives. They did have the ball three times uh, in, in the first half. And, you know, that second drive was killed a little bit by two false starts from Quinn Bailey and Casey Tucker. But Arizona State got some of those yards back on a 16-yard pass to Nikhil Harry. Um, and then Eno Benjamin got stuffed on a, on a run. And Brandon Ruiz was forced to forced to attempt a, a 53-yard field goal. He misses that. You know, that's that's kind of a tough spot for him. Uh, and then Arizona State, you know, choosing to choosing to try to run the ball um, when they have four yards to go. I, I think that, it, that every indication was that Arizona State should have been able to pick that up. Uh, with, you know, Benjamin, it just doesn't work out. In that instance, they get the ball back a third time. And after Colorado misses a, a 38-yard field goal, they get the ball back a third time, and it's just the Eno Benjamin show. I think Eno Benjamin touched the ball on the first play of the drive. I think he touched the ball on the fourth play of the drive, the fifth play of the drive, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth. And then you get Traylon Smith in to spell him so that he doesn't get 10 touches in a row. Um, and, uh, and then he comes back in after taking three plays off and finishes it off with a touchdown, his sixth touchdown in the previous six quarters. Uh, but yeah, you know, Benjamin touched the ball, I think 10 times, nine or 10 times on, on that 13 play drive, uh, was spelled just briefly by Traylon Smith. And then you also had a little bit of yardage, uh, on a Manny Wilkins nine yard run. Arizona State's up 14-7. There's 5.39 left in the second quarter, and Colorado comes out, and uh, they they get uh, 27 yards on a pass from Montez to Jay McIntyre, and then they start to kind of run the ball from there. LaVisca Chenault in the direct snap formation rushes for one yard, and he comes back out, rushes for seven yards. Then they move him out, and Steven Montez hits him for a nine-yard reception. Then they bring him back in, and he, uh, he rushes for three yards to get them down to the one, and then they move him back out to the outside, and then they hit him uh, on, a, on a short pass for a touchdown. So, you know, the, they're involving a wide receiver the same way that Arizona State is ultimately trying to involve Eno Benjamin. And when ASU fans look at the way that LaVisca Chenault is used, they kind of, you know, aggressively point at Nikhil Harry and say, why not us? Uh, which is understandable. So you have 14-14 at halftime. It feels like Arizona State was able to do so much offensively versus Colorado, um, but you know they're putting themselves in a situation where just like against Washington, when you run the ball like that, you might be keeping yourself in the game if the team's better than you, and if you're better than the team, you might be keeping them in the game. That's just what happens when you're a run-first team uh, unless you have the ability to absolutely dominate and switch things up. Um, and, and use multiple weapons and change speeds 
and that's not necessarily what Arizona State was out there doing. Uh, so, you know, th- third quarter, Arizona State comes out, gets the ball. Manny Wilkins hits Frank Darby on a rollout. Um, just absolutely fantastic pass. One of the things that I'd definitely like to see more of, uh, Manny Wilkins attacking the sideline, especially to guys like Ryan Newsom, who you aren't hearing much from, and Kyle Williams, who's a fantastic receiver, who you don't hear much from at all anymore either. Uh, but Manny Wilkins goes out. It's only his ninth pass of the game uh, when they open the second half. He hits Frank Darby for 19 yards. Then Eno Benjamin goes out, rushes for 15. Eno Benjamin goes out, rushes for six. And then that's when the safeties start to creep in. Um, and Manny Wilkins hits Frank Darby over the top for a 40-yard touchdown. And that's the kind of drive I think that Arizona State fans want to see a little bit more of. Uh, you know, you, you, have a, you have a medium-range pass, you run the ball a couple of times, get the safeties to creep up, and then you just go over the top. Uh, four plays, 75 yards, a minute 25. And, you know, you're thinking to yourself, maybe Arizona State you know, has broke this thing wide open. You know, there's 13 minutes, 35 seconds left in the third quarter, and the Sun Devils never score again. They don't score again, and uh, and Colorado has absolutely no problem marching right down the field for a touchdown. They give the ball to Trayvon McMillan three times uh, for for 20 yards rushing, and the other two uh, plays on this drive are a pass to LaVisca Chenault for 25 yards with Taron Adams and Ashari Crosswell in coverage, and then LaVisca Chenault, uh, I believe, burns Chase Lucas down the the left sideline uh, for a touchdown to tie it at 21-21. And at this point, you start to get some people that are frustrated with Chase Lucas, but you also have to remember that at this point, Arizona State hasn't hit Steven Montez. Steven Montez is just allowed to hang out in the pocket, do whatever he wants. Arizona State's bringing pressure, but it's not, it doesn't matter at all. Uh, Colorado's picking up the blitz that you know they have an experienced running back and Trayvon McMillan, his fifth year in school. Uh, they've got a they've got a pretty experienced offensive line. And, you know, they're just handling all of the movement and everything that Arizona State's doing. And Montez just has all day to do what he's going to do. Now, I saw a lot of people frustrated with Chase Lucas getting burned. Not just for this touchdown, but the next one that put ASU down. Uh, or uh, not necessarily the touchdown, but it got, they got them down to the one-yard line before the fourth LaVisca Chenault touchdown. And here's what I have to say about that. Because I think that uh, Chase Lucas has made sure that the ball hasn't even really come his way very much this year. And I think that people want to see a cornerback run step-for-step with a receiver and either intercept a pass or tip it away. But if you have it locked down to the point where a quarterback's not even looking your way, that's better. That's much better. That's the best thing that you can hope for. And that's been most of the season for Chase Lucas. So when he gets beat on two plays in one half, you know, you're going to have ASU fans saying, oh, this guy's trash, this guy's garbage. It's, it's an incredibly short memory, especially coming from, you know, two, three seasons ago when Arizona State repeatedly had the worst pass defense in all of the entire Power Five and close to the worst in, in the entire uh FBS. So this is what happens to a cornerback when they have to run step for step with a receiver all game long without the quarterback of the other team being in a rush in any way, shape, or form. Cornerbacks are not meant to hang with wide receivers for five, six, seven seconds. And I know Herm Edwards came out and said, hey, we got our best player on him and we called the right coverage. Chase Lucas just has to make that play. Chase Lucas will probably turn around and tell you the exact same thing, that it's his job to make that play. But you have to help him. 
You have to help him out. You can't leave him out there. Chase Lucas is a guy, he's long, he's athletic, but he runs a 4-6. Those guys he's going against, LaVisca Chenault, uh, <laughs> when you, um, you know, you, you, I think you had a 51-yard um, reception from KD Nixon, who's an absolute burner track star in high school in Texas. LaVisca Chenault and KD Nixon are both guys that Todd Graham went after pretty hard, by the way. Um, when you have KD Nixon out there on the edge, he's probably going to, he's going to get past anybody that you have out there on the defense. So you have to, you have to give your cornerbacks some help. Cornerbacks are not going to be able to lock down receivers. That is not how the game of football is designed. It is very hard. And everything you're doing in coverage is a reaction to an action. Everything that you do in coverage is a reaction to an action. So it's very, very, very hard to be an elite defensive back. And I'm not making excuses for Chase Lucas. He wouldn't make them for himself. I'm just saying that I go to a lot of seven-on-seven tournaments. This is what happens to defensive backs in seven-on-seven. Because there's no pressure on the quarterback. Because the quarterback's allowed to go out and do whatever they want. This is what happens when you don't get after the quarterback. You have defensive backs that hang as much as they can, but they can't do it forever. Even if the scheme's right, even if you're in a deep cover three, someone's going to get behind you eventually at some point. Or if the quarterback's allowed to move around, somebody's going to break out of the route and get open. That's just the way these things work. Cornerbacks are only as good as the pass rush a lot of the time. The scheme is helpful. That's been a big improvement for Arizona State, both under Phil Bennett and now Danny Gonzalez, than it was in years past. The scheme is helpful. The level of athlete is helpful. But without a pass rush, cornerback's going to get burned. That's the recipe for disaster. So, anyway, Chase Lucas gets beat for a 30-yard touchdown. It's 21-21. And then from that point, Arizona State's just not really able to do anything offensively. They they do go out and get a 72-yard pass um, immediately to Frank Darby by going over the top. And then Manny Wilkins bobbles a snap, uh, takes a sack, and they're not really, you know, they can't capitalize. There were people clamoring for why not take the points in a field goal. Ultimately, in this game, it didn't matter anyway. It's the difference between losing 28-21 and 28-24. So a, lo- a loss is a loss when it comes to that. Um, you know, Arizona State going for it on fourth down from uh, near the goal line and not getting it. Uh, Rob Likens flat out said, if you can't convert that, you don't deserve to win. Um, Danny Gonzalez had the same sentiments about, um, about you know, what, what Arizona State's defense wasn't able to accomplish, said that they didn't deserve to win. So when both coordinators are saying that Arizona State didn't deserve to win, it's hard to come out and say that this is one of those games that they should have won because obviously the coaches aren't convinced that they even should have really been in it. So uh, let's talk about Nikhil Harry. He, uh, He gets the ball on a punt return, I believe with a little um, over eight minutes left in the third quarter. 
and he is making his way down to the right sideline. He's doing the Nikhil Harry thing where, you know, he sift arm a couple of guys and he's he's moving uh, horizontally to try to find an opening. And before he can turn upfield, Drew Lewis comes off the sideline from about eight, nine yards deep on the sideline and hits Nikhil Harry, just absolutely blindsides him. Um, and uh, and and didn't knock him out of the game because Nikhil Harry, you know, he I think he was out there for 13 or 14 more snaps sporadically throughout the the second half. I think there really were only that many snaps for the rest of the half because Arizona State just wasn't able to do anything offensively. But you know, uh, and Nikhil Harry gets his clock cleaned. He gets banged up because of it. There was a lot of conspiracy theory type stuff um, about whether or not Drew Lewis had cheated or if he was on the sideline the entire time. Um, you know, this is something that the Pac-12 is probably going to have to look at, discuss, probably do nothing about, because I, if you have faith in Larry Scott, um, you know, I would love to have a conversation with you about where you got that faith. Uh, and, I, you know, I think the ultimately the Pac-12 is going to stand by the refs not throwing a flag, but a flag's not going to bring Nikhil Harry back. A flag's not going to keep him from being injured. Maybe a memo goes out about, <laughs> because this worked so well that you might see guys, if they get blocked out of bounds, try to round, you know, out, go behind everybody on the sidelines, you know, and, and get back into the field of play. Um, it seems like seems like it would be a little bit risky. seems like it would be an inconvenience. This really feels like a one-off freak accident type thing. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, Drew Lewis gets a hold of Nikhil Harry by coming off the sideline. It really sounds like uh, Herm Edwards even called it a smart play at the end of the game. So I think all of the drama surrounding this that was sort of building up and then enhanced by the frustration of losing to Colorado and losing your best player, uh, that that spilled over into a lot of these, you know, this isn't fair, conspiracy theories should have been flagged, etc. Um, ultimately, at the end of the day, does it really matter? Um, no. And, and according to Herm Edwards, it doesn't matter. Uh, likely, according to the Pac-12, it won't matter. And hopefully, Nikhil Harry will be back in 10 days for Stanford. So, uh, And from that point, I mean, Arizona State, they go out, they get eight yards on their ensuing drive. Eight yards. Two-yard rush from Eno Benjamin. No gain from Eno Benjamin. Manny Wilkins, six-yard rush. They got a punt. So, you know, they give the ball back to Colorado. They match that energy. They're able to go out and stop them. Um, but Darian Cornet picks up a penalty on what was a 33-yard punt um, and gives them an opportunity to come out and punt again. Uh, and it's a 45-yard punt the second time. And this was something that Herm Edwards keyed in on being one of the major mistakes of the game. On its surface, I don't, I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily get why those 12 yards mattered as much as uh, as Arizona State's trying to let on that it mattered. I mean, it's a dumb penalty, and you can't take penalties like that. Darian Cornyn just didn't really have a very good game as a gunner on on uh, on uh, punt or obviously on punt return by, by lining up offsides, uh, giving Colorado a fourth and two. But Colorado still had to give the ball back. I don't necessarily understand why the blame lays at Darian Cornet's feet for Arizona State coming out, getting nine yards on their next drive, and punting the ball away. It's not Darian Cornet's fault that ASU got nine yards. Now, if ASU had gotten the nine yards, again, if ASU had gotten the nine yards, 
from the 40-yard line instead of, uh, instead of their own 43, would they have been in field goal range? Yes. Is there any guarantee that Brandon Reese makes it? No. He had already missed a 53-yard field goal. This would have been a 48-yard attempt. Um, but, I mean, Arizona State has to pick up those yards. They have to go out and get that first down. You can't blame a part. You still had an offensive possession. You still had an offensive possession. So uh, I, I'm definitely not the expert that people who get paid to do this are. Uh, but I will tell you that I, I did not see the big issue over what amounted to 12 extra yards. Because Arizona State just goes out. They, you know, they, they punt the ball away anyway. Um, and the, the following drive, you know, and, and maybe it has to do with the, the way that the momentum kind of swung back to Colorado. But, you know, you, Colorado went out and, they, you know, they, they get a 24-yard pass to KD Nixon. Trevon McMillan rushes the ball three times. Uh, Steven Montez runs the ball once. And then you hit KD Nixon on a 51-yard pass to the, uh, to the one-yard line. of Liska Chenault comes out in the direct snap formation and scores. It's 28-21 Colorado. And, uh, and that's when you have the, the Manny Wilkins to, to Frank Darby 72-yard pass uh, where they're not able to do anything with it. So, again, you know, what does the punt return? You know, I don't know. Arizona State had plenty of opportunities, and, and you know, I'm, get, I'm getting kind of deep into the woods here. But the way the game ended um, was just absolutely brutal. Uh Colorado got the ball at 13:25 after Manny Wilkins passed to Curtis Hodges in the back of the end zone was was incomplete and they you know we'll we'll get more into that later whether or not that was the right call um, but Colorado comes out and they they before punting run 5:24 off the clock and then they get ASU to go three and out. Uh, incomplete pass from Manny, you know Manny Wilkins four yard rush, incomplete pass from Wilkins to to Hodges. Then Manny Wilkins just gets absolutely folded up, and um, a play that was reviewed for targeting and um, and and no targeting was found, and they have to punt again. Colorado gets the ball back with seven ten left, and runs the clock out. Thirteen plays, forty seven yards, and that's the end. That's the end of the game. That's 28-21 Colorado. That is the story of what happened. And let's get into next Arizona State's offensive identity and what it looked like compared to what Colorado showed Arizona State on Saturday. Mama Mavis, oh mama, they try my patience. Is gone. Who was left to save us? We mourn. I'm praying for my neighbors. They say the devil's at work and is calling favors. You say I'm dangerous. I speak for the nameless. I fly with the vultures. I be with them bangers. If change don't come, then the change won't come. If the bands make them dance, then the rain gon' come. Woo! Am I passing to the light? Am I looking to Looking to your eyes. All the world is out of your head. So I wrote a column from Boulder on uh, DevilsDigest.com. Title of it is Identity Crisis, Colorado's Offense Shows Arizona State How It's Done. Uh, posted it in a couple of places, and of course, you know, Facebook definitely gets the, uh, the you know, the, the, the less lovely comments than I, you know, I, Twitter's also a little bit of a, 
less than safe space, but someone has already on Facebook told me to shove this column where the sun doesn't shine. Um, but, you know, I'm not going to do that. I, I'm, I'm going to shove a little bit of this information in the column in your ears right now. Uh, Colorado had a pretty balanced attack. And, and my, my whole thing is I feel like Colorado showed Arizona State fans what they were actually clamoring for and hoping for from Nikhil Harry, from Manny Wilkins, from Herm Edwards and Rob Likens in the way that they run this offense. So I'm going to, I'm going to read a section of, I'm going to read the intro to this column and get a little bit more into it. In Colorado's 28 to 21 win over Arizona State, the Buffaloes ran 78 offensive plays for 494 yards of offense without turning the ball over or giving up a single sack. Moreover, Colorado moved the ball well in every quarter, outgaining ASU in all but the third, where they only had six less yards than ASU, and scored touchdowns on 100% of their trips to the red zone. Perhaps the largest point of envy for ASU fans is that Colorado managed a balanced attack in which their star wide receiver, LaVisca Chenault, touched the ball 18 times for 140 yards and four touchdowns. Their star running back, Trevon McMillan, carried the ball 30 times for 136 yards, despite only having a long of 14 yards. Colorado was everything ASU fans want the Sun Devils offense to be, one that protects the ball, protects the quarterback, and manages to feed their proven stars without disrupting the flow of the offense, all while moving at a high tempo. Seeing that type of offensive execution up close begs the question, why isn't Arizona State trying to do the same thing? So that's, that's something that I try to get into a little bit in, in this column. And it's not that what Arizona State is doing is ineffective. A lot of people are bringing up the idea that, you know, Rob Likens needs to go. Ah. I'm, I'm never the person that, that when I hear someone say, ah, we need to fire this person, that, that I, without any qualifications, jump on board and say, you know what, you're right. Because with, like with anything in life, I don't believe you run away from things, I believe you move towards something. And so anybody who has a suggestion that someone needs to be fired, if you don't have a replacement in mind, then your opinion is just noise. Addition by subtraction is not a thing in college football. You can't just fire a guy and then get better, especially when Rob Likens has probably taken a lot of his cues from Coach Fisher, from from Herm Edwards. It's it's a team effort. So to kind of put it all on Rob Likens' shoulders is a little bit interesting right now. I understand why people are doing it. I'm not going to fault you for it, but I personally am not going to jump aboard that train of thought and that narrative without something else in play or in place. So one thing I've always believed, you know, you don't, uh, <laughs> I was always told, you know, you don't quit a job unless you got something else lined up, right? But you don't call for somebody else's job unless you think that something would essentially be better um, to, to have been put in place for Arizona State. And I'm aware that Rob Likens came by his job because Arizona State didn't want to rock the boat too much. Arizona State had no intention of Rob Likens being the offensive coordinator. They wanted Billy Napier. They wanted to keep everything the same so that it was a smooth transition for Herm Edwards from being out of f- football coaching for eight years to be able to come in and, and, and have, you know, they, they believed that if you replace the head of this body, if it was just a head transplant, uh, that that was going to be, you know, everything. And, you know, I think that some people, and myself included, thought that that might be a little bit naive at the time. And ultimately, you had Phil Bennett and Billy Napier leave. And so, you know, how, how naive was it? You do have some continuity on this staff, but at the same time, 
Rob Likens has spent, I think, a total of one season calling plays at the University of Kansas, you know, a, a couple of years back. You know, and Charlie Fisher, obviously, you know, Coach Fisher, he, he, he was a head coach. So you have some experience here. Herm Edwards no stranger to working with offense and calling offenses and everything like that. So, I mean, I, I, look, at, I look at what Arizona State has and I, you know, it's definitely, it, it always takes time to gel. Uh, but I do have some concerns about the way that Arizona State seems to base their identity uh, game in and game out off of what it is they're being shown or what the other team's reputation is. Because, you know, you go into University of Washington, you don't target Nikhil Harry and you just say, well, that's the way their defense is. We're just going to take what we're what we're given, but then you watch yourself go head-to-head with Colorado. You know everything they're going to do before they do it, and they go out there and do it anyway. And and I think that it perfectly illustrated the root of the frustration of some Arizona State fans, a lot of fans that I hear from, about whether Arizona State has the ability, despite the coaches seeming to say that it, this this doesn't exist. This is this is you know capturing it as like Ahab going after the white whale. It's just such a large task, such a Herculean task to run the offense in a rhythm and also feature your star players. Um, but but look at what Lavisca Chenault did. You know, look at what Trayvon McMillan did. Look at what Steven Montez did uh, for Colorado against Arizona State. They nearly played a perfect game. They never necessarily looked out of sorts um, outside of maybe shooting themselves in the foot by going a little bit too fast at times. Uh, they didn't, you know, at no point was anything about Colorado's offense something that you wouldn't trade for in a heartbeat if you're an Arizona State fan. Um, and I'm gonna, I'll am gonna read you a little bit more. I'll, I'll read you through the end of, of, of what I wrote here, and you can look at this on, on devilsdigest.com for the rest. Um, but I said Arizona State came into the game against Colorado on the heels of a record-breaking performance from Eno Benjamin. So it stood to reason that they would attempt to establish a rushing game on the road against a team that hasn't shown they're able to shut opposing backs down. Eno Benjamin had 22 first-half touches as ASU went into the break with nearly a 3.5-to-1 run-to-pass ratio. The Sentinels were clearly using the run to set up the possibility of the pass, which offensive coordinator Rob Likens addressed after the game. And here's what Rob Likens said. You can always put more guys in the box than you can block, and that's why you saw us chucking it deep, said Likens. That's why the one post, which we landed on the three-yard line, we just put that in on the sidelines. We hadn't run that play all week. We've never run that play. We just slapped it in there because of how tight the safeties were playing. Now, this is me again. It's important to be able to make the type of in-game adjustments that Likens is talking about in order to expose holes in a defense, but it also shows that Arizona State is increasingly dependent on an offensive identity that is established in the moment, rather than an identity that is rooted in the strength and skills of the players they see in practices every single day. You know, Benjamin touched the ball 22 times in the first half at Colorado, only six times in the second half, while his teammates Isaiah Floyd and Traylon Smith were limited to one carry apiece. In a radical half-to-half shift like that, ASU is showing opponents that they ha- all they have to do to get ASU out of their game plan is simply show that you're attempting to stop it. Colorado did the opposite. Head coach Mike McIntyre illustrated this point best when after the win he commented on Arizona State's defensive schemes being appropriate for the moment, but that Colorado's execution meant they didn't have to adjust out of a fear that ASU was ready for whatever play they wanted to call. This is Mike McIntyre talking The way we ran the ball at the end of the game to put the game away, I thought that was really special, said McIntyre, adding the time we had to throw, we knew we were going to throw, they blitzed, and we protected well. 
Colorado knew that Arizona State knew what they were up to, and they did it anyway. Because Colorado is going to be Colorado for better or worse. Meanwhile, Arizona State, with an experienced senior quarterback, two of the most productive wide receivers in school history, and a stable of talented running backs with varying skill sets, seems to be dedicated week in and week out to making decisions based on the reputation of the team lining up across from them, or based on what the team is showing them in the moment. It's hard to establish an identity when you don't know who you are, independent of external factors. It's true in life, and it's true for Arizona State's offense. Colorado showed them that it doesn't have to be that way, and we will see if the Sun Devils take the hint. As I do after every game, I asked for your questions and comments on Twitter and on devilsdigest.com. So let me go ahead and jump right into those. I told you that no matter how nonsensical they would uh, they were, I'd read them on the show. So we got one here from Winosaurus Rex, uh, who is a, uh, I, I know this guy, he is a University of Arizona graduate. And he said, uh, the Sun Devils suck. I'll hang up and listen to your comments offline. Uh, I think it's pretty obvious right now that the Sun Devils do not, in fact, suck. Uh, they've just got the, uh, the finger on the trigger and the barrel of the gun pointed squarely at their own foot at this point in time. Um, from at Code Red several underscores, is Likens the right guy? Seems like not using Harry correctly, nor are other wide receivers. Example, Kyle Williams. Thought on the game management today. Now, whether or not Likens is the right guy to be offensive coordinator of Arizona State, I couldn't tell you. I can tell you that he is offensive coordinator through very, very, very non-traditional means. Usually you go out, you search for the right guy for the job, you lock that person down um, to help you establish what you want to do offensively. It's very rare that you have a situation where a coach comes in and says, um, I want to keep the offensive coordinator. And the offensive coordinator is like, no. And then you're like, all right, well, who's the next guy that worked under him? Let's make him the third highest paid OC in the entire Pac-12. Uh, and, you know, and then just roll with that. So, you know, is he the right guy? I can tell you they didn't go out and do the most thorough search. Um, then again, they didn't go out and do the most thorough search for the, the head coach either. There was, a, you know, a definite level of, of, of nepotism in, in all levels of what's going on here, does that mean that they can't get it done? Uh, you know, I think they can. Um, but obviously, they they don't believe that you should just go out and force the issue with the talent that you have on the field. They are not running the team the way that uh, Billy Napier would have, that's for sure. Um, and considering that this team says that they wanted Billy Napier to be their offensive coordinator, you know, to come out with a completely different idea of how to attack things in the scheme, it begs the question, like, did you want Billy Napier in the first place? So, I don't know. I Time will tell. Um, a few more games where Arizona State, you know, dominates the ball and scores touchdowns but can't get things done when they matter the most. Um, you know, everybody's mind's going to be made up. There's nothing I'm going to be able to convince you otherwise. So, uh, that's that. Uh, Jefferson Jones. Uh, on Twitter, one of my favorites. 
It seemed like we had the advantage in the passing game with Harry and Darby. Herm's stubbornness to run the ball against a stacked box and his NFL model and not take advantage of the matchups in our favor was frustrating. Fair take. I, I think that that, that that sums up very simplistically a lot of what people had to say about how they felt uh, about the way that Arizona State sort of ran the game to keep Colorado in it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that that's an interesting take that definitely, um, that, that definitely deserves some merit and some thought. Uh, at Juan Grande ASU on Twitter, where did Eno go in the second half? And somebody at ASU Mike P replied right into the Colorado defensive line. Um, you know, he, he had six touches. And um, you know Benjamin's running style is to you know to to find the hole. He can jump cut. He can spin. Um, he does something just so insane to me that I that I couldn't do once. Both my knees would explode the moment I tried it. Um, but he does something where he'll accelerate into what kind of looks like a jump cut. He'll jump straight forward, which will change the trajectory of uh, the person attempting to make the tackle. And then when he hits, he'll just stop, full on stop. So he'll leap forward and stop and then move sideways from the point at which he stops. So the people that are diving to where they think he'll end up are just eating dirt. And, you know, he, he, he does a lot to make guys miss. But when you load the box like that, you're either going to have to try to run to the outside, um, try to get something in the screen game, which is just holy cow, the fact that that's still non-existent for Arizona State. Uh, it can be at times maddening. But when you have two guys that are as quick and versatile as Traylon Smith and Isaiah Floyd that can sort of change up the pace of what it is you're trying to do. Um, you know, you don't see a lot of Arizona State, you know, moving their running back out to be split out wide. Um, you know, there there are there are reasons that Eno Benjamin disappeared that have a lot more to do with the effort of Arizona State in the second half to not mix things up. Um, than it was that you know Benjamin just fell off, but at the same time, 22 touches in the first half is a lot for running back at the collegiate level. Guys almost always run out of gas when you when you get to that point, and so you know it was going to be tough for him to go out there and 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 be able to play at that same level. Uh, here we go at Day Roar, sitting three and three, virtually no chance at a conference title. What is a successful season? What do we realistically have a chance to get there? Also, do we have a realistic shot to make, meet Ray's vision based on our recruiting? A lot of questions here, but the first one is, what is a successful season? Arizona State making a bowl with Herm Edwards at coach based on outside perceptions is successful in its own right but not successful according to the standards of the program. So if you go by what other people think of you, then you know everyone thinking this program was going to be a giant flaming joke. Uh, obviously, they were voted to be last in the, in the, in the Pac-12 media poll, um, even though they were returning so many players. And I've been over this a million times. They believe that Herm Edwards is actually going to harm this team. Uh, and so... Making a bowl and not finishing last in the Pac-12, finishing even two from the bottom, would be success as far as measurements against expectations from outside the program. From inside the program, you have three games that they lost that they believe they could have won. So 
success this season, you know, I don't know. Because that's always going to be kind of in the back of their mind. If they move to 9-3, and three, then they're going to still think, hey, we should have been 12-0. and 0. Um, But I, I, in my personal expectation was for this team to win seven games. Um, and, uh, and, and to me, anything at or above that I would consider successful. But the second part of your question, and I do think it's realistic that they can get there, but the second part of your question was, do we have a realistic shot to meet Ray's vision based on our recruiting? And that's been the interesting thing, is that Arizona State has done a pretty good job of of recruiting. They're not out there battling with the big boys, but they are doing their own evaluations and managing to sneak a couple of really good prospects here and there thanks to the work of Antonio Pierce. Here's the deal, though. It might be hard to keep a guy like Antonio Pierce on staff if he's going to be the one out recruiting like this um, in the midst of also turning around and getting a bunch of other two stars You know that, that, that Pierce might not be the one that's the lead recruiter on. So if another team sees Antonio Pierce as, oh, like this is the guy getting them all the four stars while everybody else is out getting them two stars. And again, they're doing their own evaluations. The stars don't matter to them. But, you know, if somebody looks at that and they say, uh, you know, well, what if we just go get this one guy and solve that problem for us, which is very possible, then it puts ASU in kind of a rough spot. So um, it to meet Ray's vision based on the recruiting, Herm Edwards is still going to have to step up and be that guy. And it remains to be seen if that's, um, you know, if that's going to be something that he's able to do. Because if you look at some of these elite recruiters, they end up in pretty high demand. Arizona pulled Dante Williams from San Jose State. Nebraska went and pulled Dante Williams from Arizona. And then Oregon went and, and, and stole Dante Williams from Nebraska. So now there's guys littering all four schools who were recruited by Dante Williams with you know no loyalty whatsoever to making sure these you know, that you coach these kids up for four or five years. You know, and, and, and these are business decisions, and that's a phrase that you've heard Antonio Pierce make. I'm not saying he's in danger to leave, but when you go out and you do a good job, that's what makes you in demand. Um, and so to meet Ray Anderson's expectations as far as recruiting, first of all, they can't meet them because, again, they started their own scouting department. And so, you know, if they believe somebody's a four or five star, um, but rivals or scout doesn't believe that they're a four or five star, then it then in turn becomes impossible to meet the expectations that Ray Anderson publicly laid out. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is winning. Um and then uh, Dayroar folded up with a with a um, a second question. Was it the right time to fire Todd Graham? Why couldn't we wait one year to see if he could put together something? Um, ah, that's done. That's a hard question to answer because it's 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 over and gone. I did ask a question. I, I'd be a little bit of a hypocrite if I didn't bring up the fact that on Devil's Digest, I did ask the question on the message board, which uh, ruffled some feathers, um, but also spurred some really great discussion is what do you believe Arizona State's record would be if Todd Graham was still the coach right now? Because I think that's a valid, that's a valid thing that you're, you're ultimately comparing it against. Do you believe that Arizona State is better off or not? Um, I can't answer the question of whether or not they should have fired Todd Graham. They did it. That's, that's that. That's, that's all there is to it. You know, there's no point in ruminating on, on that, but I do believe that there is some value in saying like, okay, what would be different if Todd Graham was here? Let's really think about what things are better, what things um, need to be made up a little bit, and, and that can help people kind of land on, you know, or, or breathe a little bit in the midst of a loss that they feel like should have been a win. Uh, let's see. At Sleep 76 do you think run DSC is the answer, or do we go with Walding, being that he made a great impression in camp? couple of things here. 
they're not going to bench Manny Wilkins. Manny Wilkins might be hurt. Someone else might end up having to play. Um, but I will go with what I know from the way that they go out and recruit people and tell them that they'll be able to compete for the starting job as a freshman, which is something you say to recruits, yes. But I think they mean it. I don't think that this staff chose Dylan Sterling Cole. Therefore, I don't think this staff has a lot of faith in Dylan Sterling Cole. And whatever anybody heard about Kurt Walding looking great in camp, um, he looked okay. He completed a couple of passes. Um, but there's nothing about any quarterback on this roster that screams they're the answer or that they're safe in the eyes of the current coaching staff, if that makes sense. I'm not saying that I don't think Dylan Sterling Cole could go out there and be a fantastic option at quarterback. I'm not saying that I I, that I think that Ryan Kelly is done. I think that that's a guy that, yeah, if he's healthy, you've got to give him a chance to get out there and at least show what he can do. And I'm not a guy that's going to say that Kurt Walding should or shouldn't be doing anything. I mean, that's a guy, Kurt Walding, <laughs> wasn't even really the starter until like, you know, 11 games into his senior season of high school. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure that any of these guys could accomplish something here or there, but Manny Wilkins is so head and shoulders above everybody else right now that it just doesn't make sense to talk about any backups. This is a guy that's thrown 188 passes with one interception. He protects the ball. If they're going to use him as a game manager, look at what he did. He hit on two big passes. He fed Nikhil in the early portion of the game. Um, he had a good game. I think he was like 12 of 18 for 222 yards. He ran the ball a little bit. What more do you want from the guy in this offense? You know, it's not designed for him to go out and be a game breaker. They want him to manage the game, and he did it effectively. I don't think we should be talking about any other quarterback unless it's a matter of injury. Uh, but I will tell you that I don't think this coaching staff has very much faith in anyone behind Manny Wilkins, and it's pretty obvious that they don't have a whole lot of faith in Manny Wilkins as well based on the way they call games. Um, does ASU's inability to use uh, – this is another question from Jefferson Jones. Does ASU's inability to use Harry like Colorado uses Chenault hurt us in recruiting? Why would a big-time playmaker come to ASU if we've shown we don't know how to use him? If I were an opposing team, that's what I'd be saying. So as far as negative recruiting or whatever. Um, it's not helpful. I mean, we have Jalen Strong. Um, oh, let me see if I can pull up Jalen Strong's tweet because that was – Something that was very telling to me. I think that, you know, a lot of Arizona State fans hold Jalen Strong in high regard. Now, don't get me wrong. A hardcore college football fan will always choose the logo on the helmet over the former player um, <laughs> 100% of the time. I remember when Kerry Taylor came out and said some stuff about Dennis Erickson that was just maybe a little early, right? Like, he was right dead on about most of the stuff that he said, but he was a year early in saying it, and I don't know if ASU fans have even forgiven Kerry Taylor 100% yet for for any of that. And so, um, you know, people don't like to see the players cause discord of any kind. Uh, so people will, people will always turn around and side with the logo on the helmet over the player, um, that is college football tradition. So I don't expect Jalen Strong's tweet to change anything. But Jalen Strong tweeted, number one receiver in the country, 18 passes. I don't know the offensive coordinator or the game plan, so I'll be quiet. Obviously, he's not being quiet because he tweeted what he tweeted. Um, but, yeah, it's not helpful in recruiting to have, you know, probably one of your most beloved receivers over the last two decades out there. Um, passively, aggressively calling out the fact that they're not using uh, the highest rated recruit that they've ever brought in to the school. So, um, 
Yeah, I, I would say that it's not helpful. Uh, at Kale Lane on Twitter, where do we go from here? Does offensive coordinator Likens have the trust of Herm going into next year, or was he a stopgap and Herm will go get someone who's a better fit for his vision? When Herm gets his footing, and he if he wants to go out and do something else, that's completely his prerogative. Um, you know, I don't think he did a whole lot of that. I think he was a pretty loyal guy as a head coach at the NFL level. Um, and his teams went through some struggles. And there was some understanding there that uh, that Herm Edwards was continually working with, you know, whichever GM was there to, to make sure that they got their kind of guys in to run their system. But then injuries derailed it every single year. So you have to plan for things not necessarily going your way. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's crazy to think that you would even want to be in a situation where you had stop gaps, where you feel like you have such confidence in your bosses believing in you to do your job that you would keep people on board that you don't believe in so that you can get people that you do later on down the road. But maybe that's just the level of trust that these two lifelong friends have in Ray Anderson and Herm Edwards. I can't speak to that. I think that I think that Herm Edwards believes, and I think I believe this too, that it's not rocket science, that that so many people could do this. And if you're not, you know, a genius or an innovator, for the most part, it's just about making the right decision in the right situation. And I believe that Herm Edwards believes he's surrounded himself with people who make the right decisions in the right situations. And I don't I don't necessarily think he puts that much more thought into it. It's just football. It's not like you're going to reinvent how things work. And I think that's the mindset that he takes into this. Otherwise, it is, it's strange to think about how Arizona State landed with the current staff that it, that, that it has. Um, if you don't just say to yourself, you know what, it's just, it's just football. It, you, you either get the job done or you don't. And if you don't, you move on to somebody else. And they might ultimately end up having to do that. Or ASU could put things together. And, I mean, we'll, we'll see from here. Um... <laughs> At forever a Sun Devil, Stanford is win at all costs. If we can't win on the road, this game is twice as important. Your thoughts? Um, yeah, Stanford's a really important game, right? You don't want to fall to four and three. Um, but the way that Herm Edwards talks about Stanford and the way that Ray Anderson talks about Stanford and the way that everybody talks about Stanford, gosh, the amount of reverence that Arizona State is giving this school right now you have to wonder if they're not just going to roll over and show their belly. You know? it It's just too much of a love fest for my taste. Like, they're, Arizona State is openly saying, like, yeah, we want to be Stanford in that, you know, we want to have the reputation that they have. Some of the things that Arizona State's done on reputation alone aren't necessarily things that I agree with uh, right now. So I, I, I'm genuinely curious if Arizona State can get together the type of killer instinct that it's going to take to go to beat Stanford and to move to four and three, and they're going to need some help from the crowd. Hopefully, ASU fans show up, even though it's on a Thursday, um, and 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 they can uh, they can influence this game in in some way, um, shape or form. Because as it stands right now, I'm not 100 percent convinced that ASU's coaching staff isn't going to go out there with a pad and a pen of paper asking David Shaw for his autograph. So very important game, but as it stands right now, um, it's hard to imagine Arizona State going in and 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 dominating a team without an established. 
identity. You know, this is a team Stanford has seen the three three five because they played San Diego State twice in the last two years. You know, this is a team that um, that uh, has knows how to beat uh, Arizona State's defensive backs with JJ Arcega. Uh, Whiteside, and you know they they have the ability to run the ball, especially if Bryce Love is healthy. I know he just sat out, but if he's healthy, that could be a problem for Arizona State. Oh, I mean, it's an important game, but I wouldn't chalk it up to a must win because, you know, I I think that this is a game that 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 if you went through at the beginning of the season, you said, you know, this is probably a game that they're gonna that they're they're gonna give away and have to make it up on the back end. Um, at true underscore fan 81, tell me why our offensive coordinator is not calling screens or sweeps when the D is blowing up our O-line with blitzes at the second half of the game. I can't, uh, because I would love to see that, and I would love to see it with Isaiah Floyd on the field. So I I will take that as rhetorical, uh, because I can't answer that question. You said, uh, good way to keep those linebackers guessing, but I guess we don't need to do that. Does he know what he's doing or just winging it? Well, first of all, he did admit to winging it a little bit, but they they winged it successfully um, on that play to, to Frank Darby. So there was some admission of some winging going on. But yeah, I mean, he knows what he's doing. He's not it, this... The idea that like if some if if a if a team messes up a couple of times that the person in charge of that is an idiot is the thing that I don't really like to see. I don't like to see it go to extremes, right? Arizona State didn't execute. Rob Likens believes that if that snap's not bobbled by Manny Wilkins in the center quarterback exchange, that that rollout becomes a touchdown and that's a non-issue. You know, did Rob Likens bobble the ball? No. Um, should they have rolled out instead of trying to smash the ball through between uh, center and guard? I don't know. I don't know. But I, I would say, you know, yes, he knows what he's doing. Um, and yes, actually, he is in situations winging it. But it, it worked out to Arizona State's advantage. Um, at Sparky B Mixer. Sparky BMXer. That's obviously a reference to a bike. You're on a bike in your picture, Mark Ofenlock. Um, do you think the 335 is a problem? Personally, I think there are too many holes. Uh, I think that not having the personnel for the 335 that they would like to have currently um, from top to bottom is a little bit of an issue. Um, but other than that, it's just another defense. I mean, you've got to have the talent to, to beat the guy that's in front of you. Um, you got to be able to to stuff gaps, and you know on some level they were doing some things successfully. Jalen Harvey saved the day about a million times. Um, and if I mean if Trayvon McMillan had any type of move at the second level whatsoever, that guy might have rushed for 300 yards against Arizona State. But all he did was hit those massive holes as hard as he could and run smack into Jalen Harvey over and over and over again. Um, and so. You know, I, I don't know. I look at the three-three-five and I say the way to beat it is to run right at it, right? Um, and if Arizona State gets ahead of teams, they can run the three-three-five and use it to their advantage. But if Arizona State keeps the other team in the game by taking eight minutes off the clock on a drive to make sure that they're never really up by two touchdowns or the other team doesn't really feel threatened... Um, then, you know, you're still going to have to deal with another team and talented running backs and trying to run the ball and everything like that. Uh, and so I, I don't know if it's a problem. It might be a problem in the context of the way the offense is run more than in a context of whether or not the defense is executing. I don't know. 
And then the last one on Twitter, at CaresRick, remember when you said ASU was not using Balazs correctly? Well, does it look like we are not using Harry enough and why? Okay, so correctly and enough are two different things. I don't think that Harry all of a sudden should, you know, be moved to an inline tight end or anything like that, unless they want to. I mean, it couldn't hurt. It's not like he'll get the ball less. Um, but, uh, yeah, they're not using him enough. Sure. I mean, I, I, I do see I do see some criticism of Nikhil Harry that I think is kind of interesting that he's not quick enough off the line or quick twitch enough to be able to just, you know, get the ball one yard off the line of scrimmage and do something with it. But then I think back to all of the insane plays the guy has made with the ball in his hands this year. And not, not a lot of the situations that Nikhil Harry has been in have been super optimal. He's drawn the most pass interference flags of any receiver I've seen in the Pac-12 so far, uh, even though he hasn't been targeted very much. He's repeatedly, when he gets the ball, carrying three or four guys on his back. He's made something out of nothing every year that he's been at Arizona State. Uh, the catch that he had against Oregon State, the touchdown at the end, was a dumb throw. He was not open. And what did he do? He came up, he caught the ball, and then he just shrugged off the defender uh, like it was absolutely nothing. And so, you know, he's definitely being used less than he should. Uh, the idea that you couldn't hit him on a little on a little bubble and the fact that he only got four yards out of it instead of six and you thinking to yourself, four yards isn't enough, so let's just never call that play, is insane to me. Like, just give him the ball and see what happens. There are ways to get him the ball. The moment that somebody plays off of him, there's no reason why Manny Wilkins can't just do what Burko used to do, so which drove Oderbino nuts, but just throw it straight across the field of the receiver, have them take one step back as far as their route goes, and then see what they can do with the ball from there. Other than that, move him around, put him put him uh, in a direct snap formation in more than just goal line situations, um, which, you know, uh, they didn't even do it in goal line situations in this case because he was banged up. But no, he's not being used enough. Um, but it's not the same as Balage. Balage, I always felt like, was a linebacker or a tight end and could have been an absolute superstar at either position. Uh, he obviously did some really special things from a direct snap, and he, and he did some incredible incredible um, sports center top ten type things uh, when he built up speed to get to the second level. Uh, but handing him the ball off was never really, I think, the most optimal use for, for, for him at Arizona State. As far as Nikhil Harry goes, He's in the right position. They're just not giving him the ball, and that's the difference. All right, the last of these were up on devilsdigest.com in the premium forum. Highly encourage you to subscribe. Join devilsdigest.com so that we can have these conversations uh, more times than just on podcasts or on Twitter. Uh, you know, I can be available 24-7 to talk with you about all of the things uh, that you want to get to. And I had a, there were a few comments on there. Um, from Santan Devil, how can the Pac-12 defend a play where a Colorado player was blocked out of bounds, sprinted another 20 yards behind the bench before returning to the field to blindside Harry, uh, maybe as well as they defended the non-call targeting Porter Gustin late on a quarterback a few weeks ago with the video showing uh, him performing textbook targeting? Um, and then he said the Pac-12 Twitter account guy has to be a Russian bot manning the account. Here's the deal. You answered your own question. How can they uh, come out and defend what happened? Um, because they've done it before. I don't have any faith in the. I, I do not have any faith in the Pac-12 to do 
the right thing. This is why every single thing that you do in the Pac-12 has to do has to put you in a position to be as far away from leaving anything at all in the hands of refs, in the hands of administrators. These are guys that can't even get a TV deal done. Um, you know, the, the, I don't expect I don't expect them to put their shoes on the right feet, much less. Uh, so, uh, I if they come out and they say. Uh, that this was a mistake by the refs, then that'll be a pleasant surprise. But that won't change my <laughs> my perception that they'll come out and do something wrong the next week or get something wrong the next week. And, and the Porter the Porter Gustin example is fantastic. Uh, so here we go at left lane hammer down. We have a ton of weapons on offense and a fifth year senior with quarterback with a decent line. The offense is just plain not getting it done. It's like we've got a Lamborghini on the autobahn and we're choosing to drive 55 miles an hour. Is this Edwards' fault or Lycan's fault? What can be done about it? First of all, this is 100% Herm Edwards. 100% Herm Edwards. Uh, I don't think that Herm Edwards, unless it's a running back, because, I mean, I'm pretty sure Larry Johnson had 400 carries for Herm Edwards uh, one year when they lost their quarterback early on, which, interestingly enough, was a time when Herm Edwards was actually one of the first head coaches trying to bring the spread offense to the NFL and didn't end up working out, so they just gave Larry Johnson the ball uh, a million times a game. Um, but, you know, this is a Herm Edwards thing. This is an NFL thing. He's doing what he knows. Um, and in the NFL, you don't, you know, one of the best receivers in the history of the NFL uh, was Michael Irvin, right? And, I, I mean, I think Herm Edwards, if he didn't coach him directly, was around Keyshawn Johnson. There's a lot of the guys of that mold from the time that Herm Edwards was most involved in in the NFL that didn't necessarily go out and put up just, you know, monster stats year in and year out. If you look at Michael Irvin's career... You know, he only had, I think, two seasons where he caught over 90 balls. And he only caught 750 passes in his entire career. Um, it, you know, he, he did he did do it for a lot of yards, and it was mostly, um, you know, picking and choosing spots here and there. But the best season he ever even had for touchdowns was he, I mean, he, he had... Uh, he had 10 touchdowns, I think, in 1995, which was his best year. He had 111 catches, 1,600 yards, which in today's NFL would be just an um, absolute monster season. Um, but, you know, that I, beyond that, this is a guy who, this is a guy who in the prime of his career, in, you know, the prime of Michael Irvin's career, uh, 91, eight touchdowns, 92, seven touchdowns, 93, seven touchdowns, 94, six touchdowns. 96, where he played 11 games, only scored twice. 97, nine touchdowns. Uh, and then and then in 1998, he caught 74 balls for over 1,000 yards, only got in the end zone once. So, you know, I, when I'm looking at what's happening to Keel Harry right now, and I'm like, man, this really feels like high-profile 1990s receivers because I remember the best receivers in the 1990s were the guys who would get the ball an average of three times a game to three and a half times a game but they'd all be for big plays or big yardage or at really like you know the big time players make big time plays in big time games it'd be that whole thing 
But, you know, if, if, if Michael Irvin's out there averaging 75 receptions a season in the prime of his career, that's four and a half catches a game. And I think Herman, I, and I, when I'm just watching Nikhil, and that's the best thing I can come up with, is that that's the era that Herm Edwards kind of harkens back to, is that, you're, that you don't build a team around the skill set of a wideout, which I think innately is a true thing. Um, at the NFL level, but necessarily, but but in college, I think you go with the most talented player and you go with the most dangerous player on the field, regardless of what position they play. Um, you know, in in the NFL, you are picking and choosing your spots, uh, and then you're just for the most part you're running the living hell out of the ball to set up those spots that you get to pick and choose. It looks like a very NFL offense to me. So when you ask if it's if it's Rob Likens or or if it's Herm Edwards, there's no way in hell that if Rob Likens was elevated to offensive coordinator and Todd Graham was still the coach here and Billy Napier had left for Louisiana, that this would be the same uh, the same situation. There's no way. This is absolutely Herm Edwards uh, doing. Um, you say fault, and I, I, I would, I would hesitate to go out and 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 say that it's his fault because it's very intentional. Um, and then you ask uh, Left Lane Hammer Down asks what can be done about it. Well, coming face to face with Colorado and getting beat while they do the one thing that everyone's asking you to do, while you sit back and say, ah, I don't know if that's possible, is one thing that might work to change it. We'll see. Uh, Lobo Jangles on DevilsDigest.com. Do you feel as though their use of Harry or lack thereof might cost them opportunities in recruiting? Uh, to me, if I had a kid in his living room, I'd point to this game in particular and see how CU utilized Chanel and how ASU has failed to capitalize on Harry's potential uh, and potential to put him in Heisman talk. Uh, also, throw in a few Brock Purdy jabs, please. Uppercuts, if you may. Huge miss. So, um, Brock Purdy threw four touchdowns, ran for a touchdown for Iowa State as a true freshman in their win over Oklahoma State. Uh, if you remember, Brock Purdy is someone that a bunch of articles were written over a long period of time of why ASU isn't offering Brock Purdy out of Perry High School. He led them to a championship appearance in which they lost to Chandler. Um, and... <laughs> And I made a lot of arguments for not offering Brock Purdy because I knew they didn't want him. Now, if they had wanted him and they wanted to pursue him, fine. But I don't like offers for show. I don't like what U of A did last year to guys like Drayson Hall and Lance Lawson. I don't like goodwill offers that aren't committable. ASU never had any chance of pursuing Brock Purdy in earnest. So a lot of people are like, why didn't they just offer him? Well, because they didn't want him. So I defend to the death ASU's right to not offer the kid. Whether or not they should have pursued him is a completely different conversation. And I think people know where I stand on that. And so uh, I'm not going to throw too many Brock Purdy jabs because I, I, I'm not in a position where I think he would be starting over Manny Wilkins or anything like that anyway. Um but yeah, I mean, it could end up being a really big miss. Uh, we'll see. But holy cow, did he have an awesome debut uh, for Iowa State. And it'll be interesting to see if they give the job back to anyone else or if you end up with a four-year starter uh, for a guy who couldn't even get offers from the two schools uh, um, in his own home state. So um, as far as recruiting, I think I touched on that a little bit. Yes, it's an issue. Schools are already going to talk about, you know, Herm Edwards the way that they've been talking about Herm Edwards. Um, 
But yeah, they're definitely going to look at this and say like, oh, you know, look at Terrell Chapman's star rating. Look at Nikhil Harris, Harry's star rating. Look at Kyle Williams' production before Herm Edwards got there. Um, you know, they're absolutely going to do that because that's what they do. That's how that's how it works. Will it ultimately cost them opportunities with some of these kids? I don't know. I mean, ASU outside of Nikhil Harry wasn't really out there getting a bunch of like four-star receivers anyway. I think um, they'll still have a pretty good opportunity to get some really talented guys, especially with Antonio Pierce being out there. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're going to have to do more for sure. Uh, ignore that sound. That's my the my my nightly uh, two a.m. water pump uh, turning on, and 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 it's really annoying. But we're gonna power through the last couple of questions here. Um, special teams outside of uh, kickoff touchbacks continue to be not so special. This is Santan Devil again. Why are we returning kicks from inside the end zone? Seems like a coaching decision because if they're not teaching it, they're allowing it to happen. I thought Coach Herm Edwards was a stats guy. Seems to me the odds are best for just taking the ball at the 25. Uh, I think this is a, a reference to Paul Lucas taking the ball out from four yards deep and only getting to like the 16 yard line. Um, I didn't have a problem with it because I saw the field at the time from up at the press box. He had about 30 yards of room in front of him when he took that kickoff. And I think that that was a judgment call. And I think that it was the probably, I, I, I would defend him on the choice to run it out based on what I saw on the field. But then ASU just missed, whiffed on like four different blocks on that kickoff return. And so if you're not executing, um, you know, it doesn't really matter, does it? And so, uh, but the other times that they've done it, uh, yeah, maybe <laughs> at this point they've had a huge lack of success and it's probably best to just take the ball at the 25. But if you're referring specifically to the time that Paul Lucas took it out from the four, he had so much space in front of him. I mean, just, it, it looked like he could have ran forever, uh, but you can't do much if, if, if your, your, uh, your guys aren't, um, putting a hat on, on everyone who's streaking down the field. Um, at PJMCKSR86, is there any possibility to re retain the current recruiting model, including Antonio Pierce, retain Coach Herm Edwards as an advisor, and bring in a young, up-and-coming coach? Huh. I, so the question here is, could we keep Herm Edwards on as an advisor and hire someone else to be a head coach of the team? Well, that's not going to happen because Ray Anderson is the athletic director. Uh, Michael Crow is a big fan of Ray Anderson. Ray Anderson is best friends with Herm Edwards. He's not going to fire his best friend. Um, if Herm Edwards goes, it's probably going to be Ray Anderson going too. So no, I would say there is no, there is no possibility in which coach Herm Edwards gets fired as head coach six games into the season or demoted to an advisor role while we bring somebody else in or even in the uh even in the offseason um yeah so that that's it I mean some great questions some great discussion uh I really really appreciate the fact that you guys listen to this and that you're powering through hearing my uh my 2 a.m water pump through the wall this has been another edition of the devil's junkie podcast post-game reaction uh ASU loses to Colorado 28-21 I will be on the speak of the devil's podcast uh which should be out tomorrow make sure you're following Brad Denny and Joe Healy on Twitter on all forms of social media those 
those guys are obviously the godfathers of all things podcasts related to Arizona State University athletics. Uh, and I am I am just happy to be part of anything that they ever do anywhere, uh, whether it's eating chicken wings at, at, at College Bar and Grill, uh, being on Devil's Digest as, uh, along with Joe Healy or, or, or Pop It on the Speak of the Devil's podcast. It's definitely a blessing to, to, to be part of that. Devil'sDigest.com supports me, so please support them uh, by subscribing. I believe it's $8.33 a month if you buy an annual package. Um, if you're looking for uh, specials and things like that, uh, keep keep an eye out uh hoder over at devil's digest is always running different promotions to make sure uh that people can have an affordable way to be part of a community um of, Su- of sun devil football uh and discuss things within the and, and get access to all the premium articles all throughout the rivals network um huge thank you to colorado uh university of colorado the media relations staff zero chance you're listening to this uh, but the food was great the hospitality was fantastic and appreciate you letting brad danny and i close the place out uh, to get some work done if you have not check out what jordan k wrote in his gamer from the university of colorado uh, talented up-and-comer he did a really really great job and and i really enjoyed reading what he had to say and that's it if you have any questions you can follow me at ralph amsden on twitter at ASU underscore rivals is the account for the Devil's Junkie podcast. Follow Hoderbino at Devil's Digest. Uh, and yeah, uh, jump on social media and let's chat about some ASU football. Until next time, it's Ralph Amsden, Devil's Junkie podcast. I was living in a devil town. I didn't know it was a devil town. Oh Lord, it really brings me down about the devil town All my friends were vampires Didn't know they were vampires Turns out I was a vampire myself in the devil town Town.